0: Hey, it's Andrew. The 2023 24 season of Portland Arts and Lectures has just been announced. Speakers include Zadie Smith, Mary Beard,
1: David Gran, Charles Yu, and Amy Nezukumotato. To learn more about the
0: season and how to join us at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall for five inspiring evenings, visit literary arts.org.
2: Welcome to The Archive Project. I'm your host this week, Amanda Bullock. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. This week, it's April, and we are celebrating the kickoff of National Poetry Month with a special event recorded in front of a sold out live audience at Literary Arts Event Space in downtown Portland on September 17th, 2022. This event was part of a partnership with the Alano Club of Portland and their Artists in Recovery series about the intersections of mental health and substance use recovery, creativity, and building community. Learn more at PortlandAlano, A-L-A-N-O dot Alano Club Director of Development and Community Engagement, Casey Anderson, emceed an evening with writers Leslie Jamison, Kava Akbar, and Hanif Abdurraqib, who each shared recent and brand new work with the audience creating a multi-genre mix of prose and poetry. As they share their own work, talk about each other's work, and their relationship to Alano Club, it's clear from the fact that they felt comfortable enough to share brand new writing that these three writers deeply admire and respect each other. Many of our episodes feature writers in conversation, but this week we have a trio of readings for you. First, we'll hear from Casey Anderson of the Alano Club, and our first writer of the evening is Leslie Jamieson, award-winning essayist and author of The Empathy Exams, who reads from her memoir, The Recovering, Intoxication and its Aftermath, as well as a new work in progress. Then, Kava Akbar reads from his most recent book of poetry, Pilgrim Bell, and a novel in progress. We'll also hear from poet and essayist Tanif abdur author of the National Book Award finalist, A Little Devil in America. His most recent poetry collection is A Fortune for Your Disaster. Abdurraki reads from his poetry and a nonfiction project to close out the event. A quick note, the readings touch on mature themes of substance abuse and recovery that may not be suitable for all listeners. Here's Casey Anderson to kick us off.
1: My name is Casey Anderson. I work at the Orlando Club of Portland it is really a pleasure to be here with Hanif and Leslie and Kaveh. Uh, I'm really happy that you all are here. I, am, I assume everyone is here on purpose. No one wandered in thinking that it was sizzle pie. So uh, I'm, gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna keep the author introductions brief. So will issue like a, a light content warning that we're, we'll be talking about mental health and recovery um, and substance use. So if, if that is triggering for anyone or if that's difficult for anyone, I apologize. But that's kind of like the crux of the evening. And uh, with that, all right, I will just say your name and that will be the extent of the introduction. Okay.
3: <laughs>
1: this is Leslie Jameson.
3: Um It's so amazing to be here. This is one of the readings I've been most thrilled to do in a long time, not only because it's thrilling to be back in person and bodies in a room, but the Alano Club is not only connected to something just close to my heart in in its in its recovery mission, but it's actually a part of this book that I'm going to start by reading a little bit of. Um, even though it's from a few years ago, The Recovering, it's a book about addiction and recovery and creativity and the weird, fraught, triangulated relationship between those three things, but um, the Alano Club was a really important part of the life of one of the subjects who I write about in this book, and when I came out to Portland to spend some time with her, um, as I was writing about her own particular journey through sobriety, uh, she took me to some meetings at the Alano Club, and um, I felt like I got this sense of, even just a gold glimpse into some of the magic of what happens there, so being part of this partnership with these two incredible writers who I've admired for a long time. um, It's just a wonderful thing. So I'm going to read a few pages from near the beginning of The Recovering and then a little bit from a new project that I have never ever read from before. So I'm terrified and excited. Um, Sitting on a folding chair in a church basement, you always face the question of how to begin. It has always been a hazard for me to speak at an AA meeting, a man named Charlie told at Cleveland AA meeting in 1959, because I knew that I could do better than other people. I really had a story to tell. I was more articulate. I could dramatize it, and I would really knock them dead. He explained the hazard like this. He'd gotten praised, he'd gotten proud, he'd gotten drunk. Now he was talking to a big crowd about how dangerous it was for him to talk to a big crowd. He was describing the perils of an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. He was being articulate about being articulate. He was dramatizing what the art of dramatizing had done to him. He said, I think I got tired of being my own hero. Fifteen years earlier, he'd published a best-selling novel about alcoholism while sober, but he relapsed a few years after it became a bestseller. I've written a book that's been called The Definitive Portrait of the Alcoholic, he told the group, and it did me no good. It was only after five minutes of talking that Charlie finally thought to begin the way others began. My name is Charles Jackson, he said, and I'm an alcoholic. By coming back to the common refrain, he was reminding himself that commonality could be its own saving grace. My story isn't much different from anyone's, he said. It's the story of a man who was made a fool of by alcohol over and over and over, year after year after year, until finally the day came when I learned that I could not handle this alone. The first time I ever told the story of my drinking, I sat among other drinkers who no longer drank. Ours was a familiar scene, plastic folding chairs, styrofoam cups of coffee gone lukewarm, phone numbers exchanged. Before the meeting, I had imagined what might happen after it was done. People would compliment my story or the way I told it, and I'd demur, well, I'm a writer, shrugging, trying not to make too big a deal out of it. I'd have the Charlie Jackson problem, my humility imperiled by my storytelling prowess. I practiced with note cards beforehand, though I didn't use them when I spoke because I didn't want to make it seem like I'd been practicing. It was after I'd gone through the part about my abortion and how much I'd been drinking pregnant, after the part about the night I don't call date rape and the etiquette of reconstructing blackouts, after I'd gone through the talking points of my pain, which seemed like nothing compared to what the other people in that room had lived. It was somewhere in the muddled territory of sobriety, getting to the repetitions of apology or the physical mechanics of prayer, that an old man in a wheelchair sitting in the front row started shouting, this is boring. We, I'm still just experiencing some flashbacks, some little trauma. Um, Feel free to tell me how interesting I am when this reading is done. We all knew him, this old man. He'd been instrumental in setting up a gay recovery community in our town back in the 70s, and now he was in the care of his much younger partner, a soft-spoken book lover who changed the man's diapers and wheeled him faithfully to meetings where he shouted obscenities. You dumb he'd called out once. Another time, he'd held my hand for our closing prayer and said, kiss me, wench. He was ill, losing the parts of his mind that filtered and restrained his speech, but he often sounded like our collective id, saying all the things that never got said aloud in meetings. I don't care, this is tedious, I've heard this before. He was nasty and sour, and he'd also saved a lot of people's lives. Now, he was bored. Other people at the meeting shifted uncomfortably in their seats. The woman sitting beside me touched my arm, a way of saying, don't stop. So I didn't. I kept going, stuttering, eyes hot, throat swollen, but this man had managed to tap veins of primal insecurity that my story wasn't good enough or that I'd failed to tell it right, that I'd somehow failed at my dysfunction, failed to make it bad or bold or interesting enough, that recovery had flatlined my story past narrative repair. When I decided to write a book about recovery, I worried about all of these possible failures. I was wary of trotting out the tired tropes of the addictive spiral and wary of the tedious architecture and tawdry self-congratulation of a redemption story. It hurt. It got worse. I got better. Who would care? This is boring. When I told people I was writing a book about addiction and recovery, I often saw their eyes glaze. Oh, that book, they seem to say, I've already read that book. I wanted to tell them that I was writing a book about that glazed look in their eyes, about the way an addiction story can make you think, I've heard that story before, before you've even heard it. I wanted to tell them I was trying to write a book about the ways addiction is a hard story to tell because addiction is always a story that has already been told, because it inevitably repeats itself, because it grinds down ultimately for everyone to the same demolished and reductive and recycled core, desire, use, repeat. In recovery, I found a community that resisted what I'd always been told about stories, that they had to be unique, suggesting instead that a story was most useful when it wasn't unique at all, when it understood itself as something that had been lived before and would be lived again. Our stories were valuable because of this redundancy, not despite it. Originality wasn't the ideal and beauty wasn't the point. When I decided to write a book about recovery, I didn't want to make it singular. Nothing about recovery had been singular. I needed the first person plural because recovery had been about immersion in the lives of others. Finding the first person plural meant spending time in archives and interviews so I could write a book that might work like a meeting, that would place my story alongside the stories of others. I could not handle this alone. That had already been said. I wanted to say it again. I wanted to write a book that was honest about the grit and bliss and tedium of learning to live in this way, in chorus, without the numbing privacy of getting drunk. I wanted to find an articulation of freedom that didn't need scare quotes or lacquer, that didn't insist on distinction as the only mark of a story worth telling, that wondered why we took that truth to be self-evident or why I'd always taken it that way. If addiction stories run on the fuel of darkness, the hypnotic spiral of an ongoing, deepening crisis, then recovery is often seen as the narrative slack, the dull terrain of wellness, a tedious addendum to the riveting blaze. I wasn't immune. I'd always been enthralled by stories of wreckage. But I wanted to know if stories about getting better could ever be as compelling as stories about falling apart. I needed to believe they could. Thanks, uh, it feels really special to read from that book, which I haven't read from in a long time, um, to read from it here in this room and in this company. Um, So I'm just gonna read a couple pages uh, to close out from the project I've been working on for, maybe the past three years uh it's um, a book called splinters it's um, a memoir but it's in uh, it's in fragments um and it's in three sections the first section is called milk and it starts with a um, i guess you could call it a poem what is the robot owl that makes babies fall asleep What is the doll with a heartbeat that makes babies fall asleep? What is the name of the thousand-dollar crib that does everything a mother does? Marina Abramovich, how many abortions? Why is the cold moon also called the morning moon? Emotional bungee cord between squirrel and baboon? Is a flying ant always a queen ant trying to start a new colony? What makes the queen ant want to start a new colony? What is the average hourly rate for divorce lawyers in New York City. How will the wolf moon change my life? All of the each section starts with a poem that is comprised of uh, Google searches. The baby and I arrived at our sublet with garbage bags full of shampoo and teething crackers, sleeves of instant oatmeal, zippered pajamas with little dangling feet. I'd run out of suitcases. We had diapers patterned with drawings of scrambled eggs and bacon. Why put breakfast on diapers, I might have asked, if there had been another adult in the room. There was not. I'd told my husband our marriage was broken past fixing. Outside, it was 19 degrees in the sun. For a month, until we found a place of our own, we were renting a dim one-bedroom in a brick fourplex beside a firehouse. I brought raspberries and a portable crib, a string of white Christmas lights to make the dark space glow. Next door, a fireman strutted with his engine toward his engine with a chainsaw in one hand and a box of Cheerios in the other. My baby tracked his every move. What was he doing with her cereal? <laughs> when I told the divorce lawyer she is 13 months old, that was when my voice finally broke. As it turned out, divorce lawyers keep tissues in their offices just like therapists, just not as ready to hand. I know we've got them somewhere, she told me warily, rising from her swivel chair to search, as if to say, we aren't surprised by your tears, but it's not our job to manage them. If I cried for five minutes, it would cost me $50. Just over 13 months, I said, wanting to make it seem like we'd stayed married longer than we actually had. Again and again, he told me, our baby is just one year old. My friend Colleen said, better to get out now. It did not help to argue with him in my head. It only helped to hold the baby so close that the small globe of her belly became the whole world. And even that, well, it cut both ways. Our sublet was a dark railroad apartment. A friend called it our birth canal. It seemed to be owned by artists. It was not made for a child. The coffee table was just a slab of wood on cinder blocks. The biggest piece of art was a large white canvas that looked like a wall hanging on the wall. Sometimes the firemen next door ran their chainsaws for no good reason, or what did I know? Maybe there was a reason for everything. Our nights were full of instant ramen and endless clementines. Our rooms were lit by the liquid pulsing of red siren lights through the slatted blinds. My fingers smelled like oranges all winter. The kitchen counters were streaked with trails of red velvet batter and little beige buttons of hardened pancake mix. The residue of throwing sugar at a problem. By day, my baby crouched among the heavy art books with her wooden maraca and smacked the translucent pages of a story about a pile of leaves, the willow, the birch, the stray mitten, the lost key, and at the bottom of everything, a tiny worm. With Mortimer the moose, she was gentle, nuzzling his patchy brown fur against her cheek. But with her wooden xylophone, she was an Old Testament god. It barely survived her music. We moved out in the middle of flu season. One night I woke up at 4 in the morning with my mouth full of sweet saliva. I stumbled to the bathroom past the dreaming baby and knelt in front of the toilet until dawn. When the baby woke, I crawled after her from room to room, then lay on my side on the wooden floor and watched her sideways. I didn't have the strength to stand, but I didn't want her out of my sight. The things she put in her mouth just blew my mind. (laughs) All I could do was lie beside her toys wrapped in a gray blanket, flushed and shivering. She handed me her favorite wooden stick, the one she used to play her rainbow xylophone. She picked up a Cheerio from the floor and lifted it tenderly toward my mouth. I could say I left my husband because I did not want to raise my daughter in a home full of resentment. I could say I left because we'd eloped after only six months before we really knew each other. I could say I left because I made promises to him before letting myself figure out if they were promises I wanted to make because he'd suffered and I wanted to believe I could give him another better life. Or I could say that I left because of his anger I could write a book about his anger. This book is not that book, but this book would not exist without it. Falling in love with him was not gradual. Falling in love with him was encompassing, consuming, life expanding. It was like ripping hunks from a loaf of fresh bread and stuffing them in my mouth. He was once a man frying little buttons of sausage on a hot plate in a Paris garret stooped under its sloped roof asking me to marry him putting his hand on my thigh while I drank contrast fluid that tasted like bitter Gatorade before a CT scan to find my burst ovarian cyst making me laugh so hard I slipped off his red couch loving the smoked tacos we got from a tiny shack just north of Morro Bay pointing out the backyard chickens from the converted garage where we stayed behind a surfer's bachelor plaid playing the nitty-gritty dirt band on a road trip putting a cinnamon bear on our rental car dashboard because it was our mascot our trusty guide our spirit animal because it was our thing we had a thousand things like everyone but ours were only ours who will find them beautiful now He was once a man ordering room service steak at the Golden Nugget after we'd said our vows in a Vegas wedding chapel at midnight. He was once a man curled beside me watching our favorite obstacle course program on TV, a man getting my face tattooed on his bicep, a man whispering in my ear at a crowded party. He is still that man, I am still that woman. We have betrayed those tender people, but we still carry them around inside of us wherever we go. I was myself a child of divorce, as they say, as if divorce were a parent. When I was very young, I thought divorce involved a ceremony. The couple moved backward through the choreography of their wedding, starting at the altar, unclasping their hands and then walking separately down the aisle. I once asked a family friend, did you have a nice divorce? The first class I taught that semester, a few weeks after we separated, the baby and I had spent the previous night at a friend's apartment. This was before I found our sublet. Things had grown too volatile to stay at home. By the time my workshop started, I'd gotten my daughter all the way across Brooklyn to her sitter, then spent an hour commuting uptown on the subway, flinching every time my phone buzzed, wondering what his next text would say, then sat in my office making a lesson plan, listening to my own pulse in my ears, skittery from too much caffeine, from the adrenaline rush of my whole life crumbling around me. My heart was a hive of bees in my chest. My students tucked their hair behind their ears and picked at their cuticles and scribbled in their notebooks and told me they wanted to write essays about labiaplasties and car accidents and getting caught in avalanches. They didn't know it, but they were all my children. My beehive heart had enough love for all of them. Once you're finally out of a broken marriage, it feels like you're just dripping with love, or at least it felt that way to me, like it was a heap of bubble bath suds growing larger and larger all around me. I wanted to slather it across the whole world. That was me in my bathtub next to the fire station, me with my baby taking care of business in every room of our birth canal. She needed to take the spoons out of the spoon rack. She needed to take the baby jeggings out of the baby jegging drawer. She needed to play her rainbow xylophone like it was a creature that had wronged her, like she was telling me, you better get on your knees, you better get on the floor and start listening. Thanks.
1: Thank you so much, Leslie. I was reminded during that to thank the uh, PNCA Willamette University Low Residency Creative Writing Program. I was reminded of it because when I was, I am a graduate of that program, but I remember thinking as I was pursuing an MFA in creative nonfiction that, and I I think Kavit maybe said something to the same effect, like if there is a person who pretty much anyone could point to as like the way that you write creative nonfiction, I think Leslie is probably that person. So the introductions will come after the readings, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Kaveh, do you want to read next? Is that... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um Yeah. Um, hosts this, what I referred to last night, as a support group, which is Trojan in into a writing group um, called The Break for the Ilano Club and, and Literary Arts. Um, and also happens to be like, if if you were going to say... How do you write poetry? I think Kava would be a pretty great place to start. So,
0: higher. You're the Aim higher. You're the tallest person in the room. I cannot (laughs) aim higher. Sure, sure, (laughs) sure, yeah. Yeah, no, thank you so much. And thank you all for being here. Um, Thank you to Literary Arts. I love this space. I love this organization. Um, It's it's a really, really lucky thing to get to be here. Um, And thank you, too, to the Alano Club You know, there are, I think that in this moment, we're all kind of desperate for fights that we can win, right? And a really nice thing is to have an unassailable good, you know, like just like, just something that is like uncomplicatedly good, you know? And the Alano Club is like one such thing. Like they only do good. Like, it's just like, there's nothing bad about the mission. It's just unassailably good, and Casey is such a big part of that. Um, just makes it so, you know, like so much of it is just his energy making it so. And so I'm so grateful to know you, to like get to sit at your feet and like watch the way that you move through the world and conduct yourself. But yeah, just thank you. Thank you, Alano Club. Um, thank you all for being here. I'm gonna read some things. Um, yeah, uh, also, The Break, yeah, you should all come out to it. It's a group where we write together, designed for people in recovery, but it's open to anyone. Um, you don't have to identify as being in any kind of recovery to come to that group. Um, I'm going to read a couple poems, and then I'm going to read from this novel that I'm working on. I have only ever been a poet my whole life, but I have, like, you know like everyone like learned how to speak Esperanto or like tango or whatever over, you know, (laughs) over quarantine. Like my thing was like, I'm going to learn how to write a novel, you know? (laughs) And so I did write a sequence of words that is now long enough to be called a novel. Um, (laughs) okay. I'm reading from this book, which is called Pilgrim Bell. And there are these poems throughout it that are also called Pilgrim Bell. And I'm going to read one of those. This is called Pilgrim Bell. The self I am today involves me, as a lake involves its cattails. It bears me, tolerates my cotton. I would prefer not to be outlived by anyone. I reserve the right to refuse enchantment. The fables I tell always end wrong. The good archer dead by a stream. The villains counting their gold. I am so vulnerable to visionaries and absolute certainty. Tell me how to live, and I will live that way. So I'm trying to like think of poems that are kind of orbiting the idea of recovery, which I have a lot of. But it's also, um, you know, it's one of the sort of. But when I was in school, um, I had a teacher who said that I wrote about three things: God, sex, and addiction, um, and like often all three at the same time. And I was like, yeah, you know. <laughs> um, uh, in in Islam, there's this there's this sort of fable about Um, it's like the first time the devil was inspecting Adam, the first time Satan was inspecting Adam. And he, the story goes that he, like, circled Adam. He was, like, inspecting him. He's like, oh, this is, like, your favorite new whatever. Um, And he's, (laughs) that's Satan's voice. Um, (laughs) uh, And he's, like, sort of circling him. And then he, like, goes into Adam's mouth and passes through his entire body and emerges out Adam's anus. And he emerges giggling, he emerges laughing, and he's like, oh, like, this is easy. Man is just one big, long hollowness waiting to be filled, right? Like, he just, like, there's, like, the man is just empty, like, completely empty inside, and he's just, like, waiting to be filled up, right? And... That's, like, functionally my autobiography, right? It's, like, it's like or I guess my biography, because I didn't write it. But, it, like, I never need to write another word. I can just, like, say that story and, like, tell everyone everything that they need to know about me. But this poem is sort of about the revelation of the Qur'an by the angel Gabriel to the prophet Muhammad, who was illiterate, but the angel Gabriel read him the Qur'an, and he was able to, like, transcribe, despite his being illiterate. Um, this poem is called The Miracle. Gabriel seizing the illiterate man, alone and fasting in a cave, and commanding, read, the man saying, I can't. Gabriel squeezing him tighter, commanding, read, the man gasping, I don't know how. Gabriel squeezing him so tight he couldn't breathe, squeezing out the air of protest the air of doubt, crushing it out of his crushable human body, saying, read in the name of your Lord who created you from a clot. And thus, literacy, revelation. It wasn't until Gabriel squeezed away what was empty in him that the prophet could be filled with miracle. Imagine the emptiness in you, The vast cavities you have spent your life trying to fill with fathers, mothers, lovers, language, drugs, money, art, praise. And imagine them gone. What's left? Whatever you aren't, which is what makes you a house useful not because it's floorboards or ceilings or walls, but because the empty space between them. Gabriel isn't coming for you. If he did, would you call him Gibril? Or Gabriel, like you are here? Who is this even for? One crisis at a time. Gabriel isn't coming for you. Cheese on a cracker. A bit of salty fish. Somewhere a man is steering a robotic plane into murder. Robot from the Czech Robota meaning forced labor, murder labor, forced. He never sees the bodies which are implied by their absence, like feathers on a paper bird. Gabriel isn't coming for you. In the absence of cloud parting, trumpet blaring, clarity, what? More living, more money, lazy sex. Mother, brother, lover, you travel and bring back silk scarves, a bag of chocolates for you don't know who yet. Someone will want them. Deliver them to an empty field. You fall asleep facing the freckle on your wrist. Somewhere a woman presses a button that locks metal doors with people behind them. The locks are useful to her, because there is an emptiness on the other side that holds the people's lives in place. She doesn't know the names of the people. Anonymity is an ancillary feature of the locks. ancillary from the Latin "anquila," meaning servant, an emptiness to hold all their living. You created from a clot. Gabriel isn't coming for you. You too full to eat. You too locked to door, too cruel to wonder, Gabriel isn't coming. You too loved to love, too speak to hear, too wet to drink, no, Gabriel, you too pride to weep, you too play to still, you too high to come, no, Gabriel won't be coming for you, too fear to move, you too pebble to stone, too saddle to horse, too crime to pay, Gabriel, no, not anymore, you too gone to save, too bloodless to martyr, too diamond to charcoal, too nation to earth, you brute, cruel pebble, Gabriel, God of man no, cheese on a cracker, mercy, mercy. Thank you. So I've written this novel. There's a sentence that I can say and mean it. Um, And this is the voice of the narrator at the very beginning. This is like the opening of the book. Maybe it was that Cyrus had done the wrong drugs in the right order, or the right drugs in the wrong order. But when God finally spoke back to him after 24 years of silence, what Cyrus wanted more than anything else was a do-over, clarification. Lying on his mattress that smelled like piss and Febreze, in his bedroom that smelled like piss and Febreze, Cyrus stared up at the room's single light bulb overhead, willing it to blink again. Willing God to confirm the bulb's flicker had been a divine action, and not just the old apartment's crappy wiring. Flash it on and off, Cyrus had been thinking, not for the first time in his life. Just a little wink, and I'll sell all my and buy a camel, I'll start over. All his at that moment amounted to a pile of soiled laundry and a stack of books borrowed from various libraries and never returned. Poetry and biographies to the lighthouse, my Uncle Napoleon. Never mind all that, though. Cyrus meant it. Why should the prophet Muhammad get a whole visit from an archangel? Why should Saul get to see the literal light of heaven on the road to Damascus? Of course, it would be easy to establish bedrock faith after such clear-cut revelation. How was it fair to celebrate those guys for faith that wasn't faith at all, that was just obedience to what they plainly observed to be true? And what sense did it make to punish the rest of humanity who had never been privy to such explicit revelation? To make everyone else lurch from crisis to crisis, desperately alone, numbering their wounds. But then it happened for Cyrus, too, right there in that ratty Indiana bedroom. He asked God to reveal himself, herself, themself, itself, whatever. He asked with all the earnestness at his disposal, which was troves. Cyrus was profoundly, often immobilizingly, earnest. If every relationship was a series of advances and retreats, Cyrus was almost never the retreater, sharing everything important about himself with a word, a smile, with a shrug as if to say, that's just the record. That's just facts. Why should I be ashamed? He'd laid there on the bare mattress on the hardwood floor, letting his cigarette ash on his bare stomach like some sulky prince, thinking, turn the lights on and off, Lord, and I'll buy a donkey. I promise. I'll buy a camel and ride him to Medina, to Gethsemane, wherever. Just flash the lights on and off, and I'll figure it out. He was thinking it, and then it, something, happened. The light bulb flickered, or maybe it got brighter, like a camera's flash going off across the street. Just a fraction of a fraction of a second like that. And then it was back to normal, a regular yellow bulb. Cyrus tried to recount the drugs he'd done that day. The standard melange of booze, weed, cigarettes, clonopin, Adderall, Neurontin, variously throughout the day. He had a couple perks left, but he'd been saving them for later in the evening. None of what he'd taken was exotic, nothing that would make him out and out hallucinate. In fact, he felt pretty sober relative to his baseline. He wondered if it had maybe been the sheer weight of his wanting or his watching that strained his eyes till they saw what they'd wanted to see. He wondered if maybe that was how God worked now in the new world. Tired of interventionist pyrotechnics like burning bushes and locust plagues, maybe God now worked through the eyes of tired drunk Iranians in the American Midwest. (laughs) Through CVS handles of bourbon and little pills with G31 written on their side. Cyrus took a pull from the giant plastic old crow bottle. The whiskey did for him what a bedside table did for normal people. It was always at the head of his mattress, holding what was essential to him in place. It lifted him daily from the same sleep it eventually set him into. Lying there, reflecting on the possible miracle he'd just experienced, Cyrus asked God to do it again. Confirmation like typing your password in twice to a web browser. Surely, if the all-knowing creator of the universe had wanted to reveal themselves to Cyrus, there'd be no ambiguity. Cyrus stared at the ceiling light, which in the fog of his cigarette smoke looked like a watery moon, and waited for it to happen again. But it didn't. Whatever sliver of a flicker he had or hadn't perceived didn't come back. And so, laying there in the stuffy haze of relative sobriety, itself a kind of high. Amidst the underwear and cans and empty orange pill bottles and half-read books held open against the hardwood, breaking their spines to face away, Cyrus had a decision to make.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Kaveh. I will introduce Hanif in this way. The last time that Hanif was in town, he was in town uh, to read at Reed College, and I was at the time enrolled in the PNCA MFA program, and we were sitting on the steps of Pioneer Square and talking, and I said uh, that I was working on an essay about Mary Clayton. And Hanif said, oh, I have an essay about Mary Clayton that's maybe going to be in the new book. And I was like, oh, great. Killer. (laughs) Um, Killer. And then we went to the, to the reading that night at Reed, and he read the Mary Clayton essay. And I don't know if anyone has seen the documentary Don't Look Back, but there's a scene where like Donovan plays a cute little Donovan song, and then Bob Dylan plays It's All Over Now, Baby Blue, and you can see like the color leave Donovan's face. <laughs> and him just being like, oh, okay, that's how you write a thing. And that was exactly how I felt that evening. So... <laughs> This is Haneif Abdurraqib.
4: In all of my dreams, the words I love you sound like they are being spoken underwater. The interviewer asked me if I have come to any new conclusions about the people aboard the Titanic who might have survived if they believed the ship was sinking. And I know the Easy answer is about the courting of death by those who consider themselves invincible. But I ask, who is in charge of setting the distance between knowing you will die and not wanting to? I say, I didn't learn to swim because I was told we would never touch the water. From up close, the severing of a metal vessel can sound like anything, a moan twirling into an ear or the relieved gasps that arrive after a season of sobbing when the breath calms itself and begins to float lazily along some endless and hazy blue, not unlike the blue that a child points towards at the sand-struck edge of the world from far enough out. It is impossible to tell where the sky ends and the water begins, the child might say. What strange architecture, the illusion between heavens. I ask if the interviewer knows about false horizons. The abnormal refraction of light creates two layers, what the eye sees is a lie, and beneath it is a reality. And in the middle appears to be nothing, a blur of darkness where your execution arrests. It would not serve me to know how I will will die, but I would not mind knowing when my heart will break next in what will usher in its breaking, and who might be an audience to a small nation of shattering, a nation of splintered reflections into each other like unkept vines weeping and winding a cure for their own lonely ache. There is a breath blown out in the moment between dawn and the fluorescence of daylight, thin as the thread that sometimes barricades the door between love and anguish. The interviewer tells me, we've talked about false horizons already what the eye can be tricked into seeing. The interviewer asks if I'm saying that no one believed the iceberg was real, but I don't understand science as much as I understand resurrection or longing. When I throw my arm over to the empty side of my bed, I apologize to the absence. Believe in the illusion until it begins to speak back. I know we are here to talk about drowning, but what if we never find each other in the afterlife? If we arrive with a memory of love, A sweetness that took its leave upon our earthly exit. What if in heaven we are meant to wander lonely as an iceberg floating between a lie and the truth? Wouldn't you want to stay a little longer? The child standing on the shore understands this, means to say there is no difference between the suffering. Heaven is another kind of drowning. The interviewer asks if I know that the flowers I've been holding are dead. When I look down, I wake up. A parade of rose petals spiral from under my tongue, each one covered in ice. Thanks. Hey, this is really great to be here, and um, thanks to Casey for putting this together. I really value and appreciate Casey's friendship, and have learned so much from and how to care for the world at the hands of someone like Casey. And it's so good to see so many people here, and it's also so good to read with Leslie, who I'm such a big fan of, and I'd never met until today, right now, and so. Um, but I've like learned a lot from Leslie's work and this has been a real, it's been a real joy to kind of like pick your brain. I feel bad because I feel like I was like interviewing you, but that's just, <laughs> I feel like that's just the way my excitement works when I meet someone and this is not true, like I know this is not true, but it feels to me in my brain and more importantly in my heart that there's never been a part of my writing journey that did not involve my brother Kava. and so. Um, I'm just, like, so proud of you, man. And so, like, you know, to get to hear that work was really special. So thank you for that. This poem is called No Scrubs. Woefully unprepared for the world's newest undressing, I hang two hands out the passenger while heavy clouds draw a knife along the sky's throat and the roads beg to be slid upon, death be damned. I ride shotgun in any machine that will hold my heart while it rise like a snake pulled from its resting place, cursing the distance between a mouth and a target. Shotgun, named after who might choose to sit close to someone who holds something precious and fire off a weapon to protect a person they did not love but could be convinced to kill in the name of And beneath the percussion of a finger's quivering along a trigger's vicious grin is something I believe to be Not far from love, I am not a killer, but there are those who I would kill for, and the kingdom of heaven has a home for that kind of devotion. The only God I pray to understands loyalty in one sense, a commitment to undoing what might undo you, a halo of dark birds circling a hunting dog at the end of a hungry and shadeless season. The dog, slowly surrendering to the violence of heat, and the heat itself, which arrives to settle a score and never leaves, laughs at our sighs thrown into the ever-thickening darkness. I was once foolish enough to think myself among the circling birds and never among the dying. I say, I know I was fly, and I mean I believe the weapon that would be the end of me hadn't been invented yet. The roads wet and damned to death, I swear, if I love you, or if I have loved you, or if I've ever heard a song, or watched a moon twirl into a blood red gown and thought of your name or if you have been dead for so long that I can remember your laugh but not your voice if I have to conduct an imaginary symphony of your once living sounds that now run through the cracks in my fingers like vengeful wind even then I swear I am beside you and reaching a hand across the flimsy partitions between this world and whatever world comes after try to holler into the expanse of terror along the road between apocalypse and aftermath See what echoes back memory is the home you earn until you can't anymore I live at home I whisper my mother's name into my cupped hands in every room I enter everywhere is my mother's house um, I'm going to read a few things from my new book there's always this year but um, so I don't even know how to word what this book is about, but I think it is safe to say it is comfortably about Ohio and about In my mind, I think it is most about surviving beyond a place where you believed you would survive. Is anyone here from Cleveland? No. Okay. So this doesn't matter. You don't really need to know this, but there was this story I found. In every book I read, I feel like there's something I find in the research that just like captivates me to no end. And in 1976, in Cleveland, just like cars were blowing up everywhere like, all over the city because of this mob war that went on. And it coincided with the Cavs being good for the first time. And so this thing had happened where people were, like, leaving the arenas, afraid to go to their cars. And, like, that kind of me up, this idea of, like, this city wrecked by bombs at a really celebratory time. So I'm going to read a little bit about bombs. In 1976, 36 bombs went off in Cleveland. The news dubbed it Bomb City, USA. Bombing itself wasn't new. The car bomb had long been one of the methods used to dispose of enemies. It left no evidence, but it was also loud, drew attention, and wasn't especially easy to execute. Pulling a trigger or even drawing a knife across the throat took less work, but also didn't always send a message. And in Cleveland, in 1976, power would be achieved by the sending of messages. So the city was alight with bombs through the summer and into the fall, cars being transformed into hills of jagged and glowing metal, whatever bodies were inside of them sometimes rendered unrecognizable depending on the immediacy of the explosion. All of this would happen out in the open, in broad daylight. The mob was becoming populated with younger, more reckless enforcers. When a city is rattled by explosions in an infinity cycle of retaliation so vicious it can hardly be remembered what its starting point or end goal is. Even those who aren't targets become targets. A person walking next to a car that goes up in flames could become collateral if the explosion does enough damage. Fear screams through a city and rearranges its DNA, no matter how the scent of promise and jubilation spun through the air before it was torn by fear's screaming. The bomb relies on the trick we have turned over in our palms here many times already. The bomb relies on the fact that the person cannot see it coming, at least not the person who might most want to see it coming, the person with their name scrawled into the afterlife of its detonation. Even if you know yourself to be a target, even If you have stitched the kind of awareness into your mind that comes with living through a city torn apart by explosions, you will never know exactly when the flash of hot light will come for you. And I can only imagine if I were not me and someone in this position in a city alight, at first I would maybe frantically check my car or underneath my porch in the mornings and then I would have to give in to the fact that what was out to get me might just eventually catch my ass. Understanding what could come for you and being able to see it coming are two separate parts of the same machine. But I know what would allow me to put a key into an ignition without closing my eyes and holding my breath. I know what would allow me to sleep easy, or at least easy enough, what was sleep being the relative that shepherds us towards some eternal forest garlanded with shadows. And I would like to pause here briefly to consider devotion. The kind of devotion it might take, for example, to extend your open palm so that someone you love or are otherwise beholden to might drop their car keys into your hand. The kind of devotion it might take, for example, to start a car that is not your car in a time and place where the car itself was a weapon and therefore the key nudged into the ignition was an extension of that weapon. What it might take for you to drive around a block a couple times knowing that someone, somewhere, not far from where your palm sweat against the steering wheels leather might be holding a small device with a single red button and I know this isn't entirely romantic I know that fear can also be one of devotions many mothers but maybe someone you have grown to love is more afraid than you are and maybe you take their keys from them pull them out of a hand without mentioning the hands shaking I would like to consider the ways we all march to our sometimes boring deaths without understanding what it is to be so devoted to someone or something that you might be compelled to speed up that march so that they can continue their own. And I am not here to consider what is good or what is bad, but simply to consider what is sometimes necessary, even if I don't have the heart for it. I only have the heart for far inferior devotions. So does everyone I love. There maybe just aren't enough people who want us dead.
1: Thank you. I would like to just thank again, Honey, Flesley, and Kava for being here with us tonight. And you join me in doing that? Please.
2: That was Leslie Jamison, Kava Akbar, and Hanif Abdurraqib for the Alano Club, recorded in front of a live audience at Literary Arts on September 17th, 2022. This episode is part of our celebration of April's National Poetry Month. Thank you to the Alano Club of Portland, especially Casey Anderson, and to Literary Arts' Jessica Mezzatorras for making this episode possible. This has been Literary Arts, The Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our executive producer is Andrew Proctor, The show is produced by Crystal Ligori and Donald Orr for Radio and Podcast, with oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson and Alberto Swem. Special thanks to literary arts marketing staff, Jyoti Roy and Hope Levy, and to the entire literary arts staff, board, and community. The show would not be possible without them. Thank you also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thank you to all of you for listening. I'm Amanda Bullock, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.